right, y'all. It's Renee, aka Socio Scientific Shouty, reporting from uh, Studio B, where the B is for bathroom. Hanging with Justin right here. Justin, do you want to say hello? What's up, y'all? I don't have a cool nickname, but <laughs> I mean, we can just call myself Justin. Cool. And we're here with our first in person season two guest, Brennan Anglin. And Brennan is a professor for St. Louis University's Cannabis Science and Operations Program. He's also the founder of the St. Louis Cannabis Club, which is a cannabis resource network that connects the cannabis industry with culture through events focused on wellness, education, entertainment, and economy. And for this group, he founded the Cola Lounge, which <laughs> as a volunteer and a frequent patron of the Cola Lounge, I enjoy. Um, but the Cola Lounge is a private members club where people can safely consume and learn about the plant. He's also the president of the Missouri uh, Minorities for Medical Marijuana, excuse me, that's a mouthful, otherwise known as m for mm and it's the world's largest minority advocacy organization for the cannabis industry. His duty is to lead and inform politicians, professionals, and peoples of the state. Ooh, I gotta say that again. His duty is to lead and inform politicians, professionals, and people of the state on the importance of minority inclusion and equality in the industry while assisting and paving the way for real impact and action. So Brennan, welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you. Yes, I'm <laughs> glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so guys, I've known and worked closely with Brennan for about what, like eight months now? Sounds about right. Yeah. And as I've been trying to really connect more with weed and learn about it, like I just knew that I had to go to the OGs because, you know, you can you got all these dispensaries open and on the street and stuff, but the reality is is our uncles, our aunties, our cousins, like the people who we really like know and love the most often like they just have that knowledge about the plant that's just been passed down through generations so i'm happy to have somebody who obviously has a lot of industry experience um as well as scientific experience and that sort of background but just more so a personal connection to the plant and who knows a lot about curating community so thank you for joining us yes yeah and thanks for that shout out you know it's like i definitely I uh, feel like uh, the plant has called me to it as much as I call on it. You know mm, what I mean? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And speaking of, um, I guess as far as like, you know, jumping right into what we were going to talk about. So like speaking of um, your business, the Cola Lounge and how, how you know a lot about the history of the plant, you know, a lot about the history of like cultivating that community. So one of the things we're going to talk about was like, the history of like social consumption and I guess, you know, to start, um, I just wanted to talk some about like the Cola Lounge and like how that plays into like the history, how that ties into the history of social consumption. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, um, in its in its original um, kind of unbroken cultural connection, the plant was found on in every single neighborhood, you know, it's predominantly in, in urban centers. We're talking back into the 20s. Um, before reefer madness, um, the tea pads were on every single corner, um, in urban centers and 
predominantly in black and brown neighborhoods. And uh, in the tea pads were a, a space where people could come and, and have access to the plant, uh, purchase the plant, consume the plant there. And they would also have other amenities like food or music, uh, cafe space, um, other things where people could just enjoy the plant and whatever else it was that they wanted to do, uh, whether for entertainment or for work. And so <clears throat> in New York City, in, before 1930, in New York City, there were over 230 tea pads. Mm. That's more Starbucks than exist in the state of New York today. Mm. So tea pads was it. Tea pads was it. Mm. More you found them more prevalently, and I'm just going to say that again. More you found more of them in the city of New York than you find Starbucks in the state of New York today. Wow. And so. So they was chafing. Dang right. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know what what I'm doing right now isn't necessarily an innovative concept. You know, creating community around this, the plant and making it part of the urban center, but we're we're just reclaiming part of what this plant has done for us and for our communities and our neighborhoods and our culture uh, for generations. Uh, we're just now in a space that we can bring it above ground again um, and do it in a way that's safe and enjoyable and celebrative and uh, really innovative. You know, and hopefully takes some of what is the history of how lounges and how you know uh social consumption culture have been part of uh part of, part of us and then how we can augment it and then adapt that uh for the future you know and part of that is by necessity because the corporate industry has left us with very few access points as people of color to the industry so as always we have to get creative on how we're gonna uh both participate and make money you know yeah i think uh I think one of the craziest things about the, I mean, you're pointing about like how there were more like tea labs than Starbucks, like as far as like, you know, density. And I think one of the craziest things about learning about the history of cannabis, like in this country is like the fact that it's not just that like cannabis has always been tied to like through like history of this country. It's that like, it was always like, not well always, but like it was super prevalent. I mean, this is, you know, the second time now tied back to the, uh, interview with Dr. Nurse. Um, so I guess that's kind of a shout out. Like when she's talking about like how, um, when like the, you know, the, the initial like U.S. colonies were like chartered, well, not U.S. colonies, but like the initial like English colonies were like chartered in like Jamestown and stuff. Literally part of the charter was like that, you know, they wanted the colonists to grow hemp for England. And then eventually, you know, half of like plantations were growing hemp as far as like, you know, what the slaves were working on and stuff. And so it's like, this plant hasn't just been like, somewhat popping up throughout history it's like no this was like the cannabis plant has been a vital part of like the history of this country certainly yeah you know yeah definitely and there are you know and there are there are different ways that that journey was interpreted uh depending on what part of the journey you were in you know obviously if it was one of the largest cash crops through slavery then that means that we were the ones growing it right mm -hmm. and in the south hemp was called the nigger crop Mm. and mm. Kentucky was the largest hemp producer in the country Kentucky mm. and so the space that we have to reclaim with the plant is uh, I mean it's it's nuanced because there are parts of it that have to do with 
um, how powerful and beautiful that the plant is on its own. And then part of it has to do with how powerful and beautiful we are as black and brown people and how our connection with this plant um, is as resilient as it is. You know what I'm saying? And we, uh, we've been tied to persecution and, th- and to, you know, we've been subjected to uh, the same type of suppression uh, and, and um, I don't know, objectification that is happening to the plant kingdom. Because whenever people in control are intimidated by anything, whether it be a plant or a group of people, uh, then they find ways to shift the rhetoric and change the narrative uh, to make them it or us evil, you know. Mm. And uh, so, you know, we, we definitely, I think that we're in a space where, you know, Kentucky was the number one hemp producer. Missouri was the, the number two. Um, and so it's in the heart and soul and the DNA of, mm. of uh, you know, even some of the, the most conservative good, of good old boys here, they know that generations back that they made their money on hemp. And um, obviously the male plant wasn't the only one around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the, fee- the, the journey with the female plant has just been more controversial. And so it isn't as easy. It wasn't as documented as clearly how people were enjoying and celebrating the plant because a huge piece uh, of our history, they were just altering and changing the media and the narrative about it um, into the whole reefer madness thing of the 30s. But there was a whole time whenever everyone was just enjoying the plant and it was just part of our culture. You know? mm. And I feel like we've hit on this in a couple different episodes where we we see that this discussion of hemp in history seems to be rather, I guess, clean or just seems like, okay, hemp was a part of white culture. It was normal. It was okay. But then we get to our flower that's full of, you know, our favorite THC. And, like, people just totally think differently about it. So why does the stigma get introduced with this type of plant versus, like, the male plant? Is this, like, coming from history? Is this on some racial line stuff? Is it on like more so the effects that it has on people and like what our culture thinks about when it comes to like having like an altered state of mind through drugs? What is it? Well, I think, you know, and maybe... Loaded question. Yeah, (laughs) maybe maybe you mean this differently, but I think that, you know, it's only been recent Mm -hmm. that even the male plant has been destigmatized. You know, um, there was a time uh, recently whenever it wasn't even legal for companies to use cannabis leaves in their marketing, even if they were just using, like, if they were just using hemp. Wow. Um, I was making a hemp wick, actually, back in, like, 2011 or something, and I was sourcing organic hemp. I had to get, mm-hmm. I had to order, I had to order hemp from Romania uh, wow. that was sourced through Canada in order to find uh, clean hemp, specifically, but um, there are the, the stigma ran deep, um, so much so that, you know, the hemp industry took the biggest hit, uh, even even bigger than the, the female, uh, you know, kind of marijuana mm-hmm. consumption industry. You know, the, the hemp industry took the biggest hit because it's such a core piece of so many potential textiles. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, yeah, I think that we are also just kind of reclaiming that. And it did happen first, you know, it, I think two, we're probably two decades in, I would say, but I remember even when it was kind of like controversial when hemp's 
lotion came out at like Bed Bath and you know Bed Bath and Beyond or Beyond or whatever you know and they're like oh wait it has hemp in it but is it like what and they're like oh no it's just the hemp seed no like, but it just get you high and it's gonna be crazy it's gonna be crazy. <clears throat> it's gonna be yeah so there was still so much of that even into <clears throat> you know the two thousands really you know so we've come really far really fast as far as the destigmatization and um, I think that also one of the things that has kind of exacerbated that or, or has accelerated that has been there's been so much more emphasis on how the female plant is getting more attention that it's mm. dramatically altered or, or, or kind of separated the two mm. right so it's like mm. where before the male plant and female plant were handled and kind of harvested and manipulated the same way and seeds were part of it now the female plant has been uh, you know, trained and, and, and cultivated it in a way that it is, a, it does operate in many ways as a separate product, mm. more so than what it used to. So I think that might be a way of kind of, you know, answering what you were saying in a couple different ways. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then I guess, speaking of, you know, all the like craze around the female plan and the change in policy, <laughs> let's talk Missouri. So you've been, you know, pretty active and it's been great to even be a part of it myself. But with like the the recent policy that just got passed, I mean, we're wrecked now. We've been wrecked for how long? A few days, a week? Well, I mean, officially, you know, we had wreck uh, rights as consumers mm-hmm. uh, in December. Okay. And then the actual... Uh, sales went into effect, yeah, just like two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, like, yeah, how that all went down. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get into it? Yeah, so how about that? Yeah, just to clarify, like, what were the specific policies? And- sure. Well, I mean, it, the, the policy was called, it was, uh, the amendment was called Amendment 3. It was run by a, 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 a group called Legal Missouri. And it was a, a pack of organizations and companies um, and politicians and um, lobbyists that... Oh, see, so these were high-status people, right? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, there are still grassroots people that are part of the organization, mm-hmm. and it is itself kind of a re-amalgamation of an organization that's mutated three or four times and taken on different names and different entities as it's kind of changed and pivoted its uh, approach and also its power structure. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've actually been around for most of those waves. I started Mm -hmm. doing activism work back in 2014 and 2015 and uh, so I was working directly with a, a campaign called Show Me Cannabis through 2015 and 2016. And that was one of the, it's easy to say that it was one of the predecessors to what is now Legal Missouri, because most of the crew that was part of that is now Legal Mo. Now, no, it's not the same organization. Yes, someone else owns rights to the name and blah, 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 blah of the old organization. But this, you know. These are most of the people from that camp now run Legal Mo. And so I still have some pre-existing relationships with people that I was in the trenches with uh, now almost a decade ago that now have chosen a really specific lane in order to get recreational passed. And they were also the initiative team that got medical passed in 2018. So... 
two layers deep of an initiative team that has worked really hard. I'm not going to knock them by any means. They've mm-hmm. gone through the night, over the night, and, you know, uh, exhausted themselves to get this through. And um, so, you know, for that, that I acknowledge and commend them for. Now, I've also had some harsh criticisms of the campaign. Mm-hmm. And the campaign and the language, which are two different things. Oh. You know, it's like, because how you're campaigning something... And then what you actually put into to, to law or into, mm-hmm. you know, into proposed law. Mm-hmm. Two different things to evaluate, to criticize. And then they both obviously, if done appropriately, should intersect. But that's actually part of my problem with the campaign is some of the points that do not intersect mm-hmm. with the language. And the enable, specifically with the most recent language, how they allowed, I feel like, that they allowed inflamed misinterpretations to mm. cycle through the community without putting them to rest. Mm. The main one being the misunderstanding of how expungement works mm. and that the people, they were saying that, you know, hundreds, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were going to be affected by the expungement initiative. Their records were going to be clear. But what was not clear is that these are mostly people that are out of prison already. Mm. So the initiative is awesome in that it does do great things for people in clearing their records. Mm -hmm. But on paper, it only clears on average 14 to 30 people maybe that would qualify a year uh, to actually get out of jail. Wow. While there were people on the outside that were interpreting this as hundreds and thousands of people are going to get out of jail. Did they say it? No. Did they not say it and clarify for the public whenever it was going kind of like, and it was obviously and people were saying it in the public. They never cleared that up. No. And yeah. so, you know, and it could be, they could claim ignorance. They could say they didn't see it. They could say they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just, I would challenge that. Um, and I have, mm. and I've had a couple different forums since then that I've both set up opportunities for the community to get information from them mm-hmm. uh, and other groups that were proposing ideas. Uh, one forum was a debate. One forum was just kind of a question and answer town hall. And uh, then I've also just per- participated in other town halls that have just been hosted by, uh, you know, state senators or just from local professionals that are looking for informed, balanced input um, because they know that as much as I have respect for the people that are running this campaign, I also have been highly critical and I have no problem doing that in public forum, you know? And so, uh, yeah, that's just one piece of it. I could get tangent. I could go on tangents about this, but Mm -hmm. the other piece other than the expungement is the lack of minority uh, involvement in the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the same folks that gave us a bill where, or gave us a, legal program for medical where we have less than a handful of black and brown owners in the entire state now just boosted that language to only give rights to the existing license holders first. Wow. And then the, uh, provisions that were, that were, are, are at least mentioned when someone asks about social equity, the provisions that are put in there are for a micro license program, which actually doesn't structure, isn't structured in a way that protects or specifies rights for black and brown people or those that are specifically affected by the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. One example is that the micro license program says that you have to have made 200% mm-hmm. over the 
po- the poverty line, right? Mm-hmm. So 200% over the poverty line is about 30 something K. Mm-hmm. That also happens to be the median income of the motherfucking state, yeah. which means that on that one qualifier, most people, regardless of race right. or, or journey, are going to qualify to apply for the micro license wow. program, which is only set to release six licenses per congressional district mm-hmm. every hundred something days. Mm-hmm. We only have nine congressional districts in the mm-hmm. state. I know that was a lot of numbers that I just dropped it, but people can hit the back, back 15 or back 10 button mm-hmm. on the podcast <laughs> and just listen to that part again. Right. Because, you know, we're trying to do, you know, work around this and write some stuff up because there's not too much happening in terms of the people who who put all the money to make sure this policy went through we're not necessarily seeing what what are the ramifications actually in the black and brown community like are our niggas gonna be in jail our niggas not gonna be in jail is right. the bottom line question right. you know are niggas gonna be able to make money or are niggas not gonna make money off of this is mm-hmm. the bottom line question are we still gonna be at harm from this or are we not gonna be at harm and it's like, what from at least what I get from what you're saying is that there's just so many of those problems that the answer is no, it's not going to change. It's going to be the way it was before. So, whew. yeah. And there are whew. when it comes to when it comes to uh, opportunities for corporate involvement, mm-hmm. those those haven't really changed. When it comes to opportunities for people who have been massively incarcerated to get out of jail Mm -hmm. that hasn't really changed Mm -hmm. has it changed that uh has it changed that there are less laws for us to get in trouble for yes Mm -hmm. but does a cop that pulls us over because we're black know that we're smoking weed before they pull us over no they pull us over because we're black Mm -hmm. so how does that change Mm -hmm. that's part of that's that's way even more systemic than even what a cannabis law can fix mm-hmm. because we're getting fucked with regardless. So, mm-hmm. But does it also mean that officers that otherwise might be, say, in a double ride mm-hmm. and maybe it's good cop, bad cop, mm-hmm. and one of the cops is like, dude, I'm so tired of fucking with people that have weed. Mm-hmm. And the other cop's the type of cop that's like, yeah, this just gives me an opportunity to fuck with them. Mm-hmm. Well, now, at least there's an accountability check that one can rightfully be like, you are free to go mm-hmm. and not at least be incentivized and be like, oh, fuck, I know that my partner has reason to fuck with them right now. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So now if, when that cop's by himself, is he, you know, the, the cop that would fuck with us anyway, is he probably mm-hmm. going to fuck with us if mm-hmm. he smells weed? Mm-hmm. Probably. That's my thought. Most of us think that way. They're just going to find some other reason to mess with us. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be like, oh, well, just be, I guarantee you there's an entire group of uh, policing entities that, I mean, I know it, that are, they're finding out ways to police us in our high on the road. Mm-hmm. They're finding out, trying to figure out how they can still ticket us mm-hmm. and how they can still arrest us. Mm-hmm. So it's not like all the cops are like, thank God I don't have to worry about that anymore. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are just looking for other ways to ticket us or arrest us mm-hmm. or let out their stress. Look, one thing we're going to get into this podcast is if you want to change what's happening with weed, you're going to have to change policing. No doubt. You're going to have to change the racial order in America. You're going to have to change some things that are fundamentally just how America has always been. And I think people get a little scared when... It, 
they hear the idea of these like major changes but when we look at what's happening and see people still like losing their lives over weed Mm -hmm. losing their lives over weed whether it be they actually you know got physically harmed and they lost their life or they were put in jail for the rest of their life and it impacted their entire family like we have to do something different like we have to do something different like we really have to sit down and say you know what let's think creatively as we're like in this process of changing how just changing how this whole country thinks about and operates like about when it comes to weed we just gotta do something different like i don't know what to say oh yeah and rant (laughs) yeah yeah and weed laws only change only i hope partially Mm. yeah well we're making good progress here but i think now's a good time to talk about what we're smoking on today so i had to uh pack another uh, cone with my roses i got from this trip into Morocco, and they are the most fragrant roses I've ever smelled in my life. Yeah, they're delicious. Thank you. I love them. I love them. And then, Brennan, you brought us a little something today, too. So, do you want to tell us what we're smoking on? Yeah, it was some Maui skunk. Uh, it's a heady, like, would be considered, uh, at this point, it's like a great-grandpa strain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, those genetics have been re re uh rebred in a lot of different ways but um the maui wowie and the skunk um phenos are very uh old lines and so it has a really traditional piney gassy no citrus it's like pine heavy heavy pine my uh, a little bit of mercine, so it does have a little bit of fruitiness, like a, a little musk, like you'd smell on a mango, you know. Yeah, yes, stimulating, cerebral, euphoric, good for good for conversation. <laughs> you could give like a, a personality profile to each strain, you mm-hmm. would do it just like that. Yeah, euphoric, throw it out, <laughs> I'm like, throw one at me, let's go <laughs> for real. So, actually, I feel like this brings us the perfect timing to get into our, like, our our quick questions, because we're just running out of time, but we've learned so much today. So, first off, do you have a favorite strain? Hmm. I, I don't. Okay. I really like, I have more of, like, a favorite terp. I really like caryophylline. Okay. Caryophylline, depending on how I say it peppery i like things Mm -hmm. that are kind of peppery Mm -hmm. um i also like myrcene so i like things that are uh kind of musky and sweet but i don't like citrusy Mm. yeah Mm. like i I can do like lemon citrus but like orangey citrus aim for me interesting anything that smells or tastes like a clementine i was gonna say is that with food too i might hit it to be kind but like i'm not about it yeah i don't really do with well i I don't really like a lot of orange stuff so Hmm. well my entire apartment's like orange i mean i like the color (laughs) (laughs) just not the taste okay all right and then what do you watch or listen to when you're elevated hmm when i what do i watch Mm -hmm. um 
I watch and listen. There's a page called Dust to Digital on Instagram, and they do these like really obscure or just inspiring musician clips from all over the world, and they do these compilations. And so I love to just go through and just get stuck on these little wormholes where I'll jump from one uh, one compilation and then jump onto their page and follow them for a while. That's one of my favorites. And then um, I also like listening to Radio.Garden, which is also like an interactive music experience. If you go to Radio.Garden, it gives you a basically like a Google map like globe like it gives you a google globe you know kind of and it's three-dimensional and you can scroll around the globe and uh click on radio stations anywhere in the world yeah so it's really fun to get really elevated and just like click around and find different yeah 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 Yeah. but then if i you know i also just will if i was going to listen listen just sit down um you know some uh stevie wonder or some jamaica or some jamaiquai Oh. Um, yeah. Or a lot. There are a lot of other things, but I've been on a globe. I've been on a global groove kick lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you put me onto that new what loose in the Yakuza, Yakuza yeah. album. So good. Yeah, it's been on repeat, like so good. Hell yeah. Um. All right. So when you get the munchies, what snack are you reaching for? chips always it's like it and you, i mean i'm not super biased on what flavor okay i mean red hot ripplets are going to be my number one go-to so st louis, so st. louis. <laughs> um and uh sometimes i'll even do and then i'll even get the barbecue the new barbecue ridged ones and i'll like either go back and forth or i'll put them both in my mouth at the same time they do this it's so good it's so good interesting all right and then how and when do you partake? Like, are you smoking? Is it edibles? Is it dabs? Is it vaping? Is um, it is it part of a ritual? Is it just more casual? Is it social? Sure, it? sure. I'm I'm primarily a smoker, mm-hmm. and um, I socially smoke, but then I also spiritually smoke. Whenever I'm in my best mind, I'm always spiritually smoking. Um, when I'm in my best space, uh-huh. meaning that. I'm always, when I, the times that I'm partaking, I'm partaking with intention um, and with gratitude, um, not only just of everything I know, but also of every mystery. That, every mystery? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then when we were in the cola, you briefly mentioned stone ape theory. And I was like, what is that? And you told me, you wouldn't tell me until we sat down at Studio B. So now that we're Ooh. here, can you tell me? And the rest of our curious listeners. Yeah, I've heard the term. Ape- sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, basically, to put it in summation, it is the theory of psychedelically guided evolution of human consciousness. Oh, shit. And that <laughs> as we moved, uh, one of the things that made us, uh, like, basically out, outbeat the Neanderthal was, like, our, our uh, following of herding animals that were also exposing us to psychedelics. Whether it be through eating the Amanita muscaria that are left behind um, or that are left in the paths uh, where uh, reindeer were. That's a whole other tangent. But uh, the Amanita muscaria, the the, the medicine people of uh, of the, um, what's it called, northern Russia, um, 
Siberia. Siberia, yeah. They've got um, they got mushrooms that grow underneath Christmas trees, evergreen trees, and oh. the reindeer like to eat them and prance around. And <laughs> goals, <laughs> right? Um, and then it is also it is also said I haven't like I've read this many different places, but that these shaman would re- drink the reindeer urine because it was a concentration of the. Uh, the uh, poisons from the mushroom but so the theory is stoned ape theory basically (laughs) says that over the the over our the course of our history um as homo sapiens that we have the our frontal lobe has expanded and our eyes have gotten smaller uh because of our use of psychedelics now psychedelics are are found in in other parts of the animal kingdom you know other animals trip Mm. that's been proven what other animals are tripping Jaguar, uh, oh. puff, uh, dolphins. Um, you could tell dolphins was definitely dolphins. tripping out. So like elephants, like stuff growing like in the ocean. Though? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a puffer fish, so they know they can like hit oh. the puffer fish and it lets out a certain amount of toxin, and then they get high from it. Uh uh-uh, oh, not them smoking on that puffer. Yeah. <laughs> so dolphins, jaguar. There's there are certain um, flowers in the jungle that they know they can eat. And if you think about cats, like cats, they love to get high off of all types of plants. My my cat. Mm-hmm eats my spider plant all the time and he's always tripping like he always looks like he's on ecstasy and uh you know but uh and then the elephants elephants actually are known to eat uh fermented fruit around grievance rituals so that's even Mm. it's even uh built into how they use so you can they we've witnessed it in ceremony right Mm. and humans our biggest thing uh the other thing that that brought us away from the other Neanderthals is um, our connection with dogs and watching how dogs moved in packs and um, our relationship with the animal kingdom is my point Um, and how we watch the animal kingdom Mm -hmm. is a huge part of how we've moved from being apes to stoned apes. Bruh. Theory. Yeah, and you know, it's it's a fun way to look at it, and you know, there are a lot of other ways, and it's not to say that it is a what like it is a linear, one sided, or one path or one route um, concept, mm-hmm. but there are pieces of it that you can find and that match up with the histories of most indigenous peoples on the planet, mm. and our use of ceremonial substances to help guide us to other spaces wow. and to help move us into new realms as we evolve and we advance with our technologies and with our uh with our practices of uh like ritual and okay. thoughts of how creation stories happen all of these things are complexified by our connection with the psychedelic realm wow yeah, i mean it's kind of like all other theories where it's like you have this general this general like sphere of you know ideas that you can kind of pull from that kind of just guide like the way we approach like the new archaeological archaeological like discoveries that come out. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah, and it is it is the way it's it's finding like with most theories it's finding uh, relativity. You know, it's like how you can relate it to uh, other pieces that we've already put on the board. You know, lens is the word I'm looking for. That makes sense. Um, another lens to look you know to look at history with. Exactly. And like yeah, I yeah, heard the term. We went there. <laughs> we went from like political to historical to social to spiritual. I love it. So, Brennan, before we head out, um, we just want to thank you so much again for coming. Um, could you plug us to your website, socials, events, and just sure all these opportunities to connect with you? Because yeah, I know thanks. there's plenty. Sure. So you can follow Instagram as our most uh, active and it's at the cola 
Lounge and also at STL underscore Cannabis Club. You can also find us at thecolastl.com. And, uh, you know, the cola where buds meet um, is uh, the first private cannabis consumption lounge in Missouri that I opened back in 2019. And we just recently opened our in our new location. We moved um, mid-COVID. And now we're in a new location across the street. And, um, and it's beautiful. we're open every day right now from 2 to 11. More hours coming soon. And we have all types of cool programming from... Puff Pass and Paint classes and guided meditations and yoga and private dinners and uh, comedy events and uh, grower meetups, you name it. Also, we're just a spot where people can co-work during the day and hang out and uh, meet a bud, <laughs> play some video games, maybe uh, color in a coloring book, or play some Uno. <laughs> Thanks. Or foosball. <laughs> or foosball, right. All right. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. And I guess we'll close this up. Yeah. Right Chill on. Outro. Stay happy, stay high, y'all. <laughs>